gentlemen, this is the Sauce Town Stories Podcast. I am your host, Matt Cox. Welcome back. Uh, we got an amazing guest today. I just got done interviewing Ken Valick. Uh, he's a CEO of a business uh, with over $24 billion in assets under management, and he is from Salem, Oregon. Um, before we get into it, a quick note. Uh, during the interview, a couple times I refer to his three companies uh, that he, he is CEO of as Trammel Crow Residential, Trammel Crow Holdings Industrial, and Trammel Crow Holdings Office. Uh, I'm issuing a correction. The companies are actually Trammel Crow Residential. I said that one correctly. Uh, but then it is just Crow Holdings Industrial and Crow Holdings Office. Um, so I just wanted to clarify that before you guys listen. But uh, with that, let's uh, have a quick word from Ash Creek, and then let's get into it. Ash Creek, Oregon has the best hazelnuts in the game, and they've been a proud friend and sponsor of the Sauce Town Stories podcast since day one. Well, guess what? Ash Creek is back to take care of you guys again this Valentine's Day. Go to ashcreekoregon.com, enter promo code SAUCE, that's S-A-U-C-E, to get 10% off a bag, or better yet, get the variety pack, try all three, uh, the milk chocolate, my personal favorite, the dark chocolate, and the roasted. Uh, get it for that special someone this Valentine's Day, or just get it for yourself. It doesn't matter, but Ash Creek, Oregon is here to take care of you. Go to ashcreekoregon.com and order today. After that quick word from our sponsor, Ash Creek Farms, I am joined by an amazing guest today. Um, he is the CEO of Trammel Crow Residential, Trammel Crow Holdings Industrial, Trammel Crow Holdings Office, um, businesses with over $24 billion, with a B, uh, dollars in assets under management. He's the chair of the National Multifamily Housing Council. Uh, he's on numerous other boards and nonprofits that I don't have time to name here. This is based on my experience. The best Christmas chocolate gift basket mailer in the business. I am joined by South Salem grad Ken Valick. Ken, how are you doing? Good. Thank you, Matt. Too kind. Too kind. <laughs> yes, and you're a busy guy, so thank you for making time for us today. Well, not never too busy for uh, the son of a longtime friend of mine, so... I appreciate it. And where are you joining us from today? Today, I'm actually in Houston, Texas, which is my hometown these days. Gotcha. So to kind of start us off, let's hop in. Could you give us um, a bit of an intro um, to your ties as well as your family's ties to the Salem area? And then tell us a little bit about your childhood and growing up in Salem up through your time at South Salem High. Sure. I'd love to. I don't get asked that that often. And it's uh, one of my favorite topics to talk about. So I was born in Washington, D.C. My dad worked for the Federal Highway Administration. And in the 50s and 60s, building the Federal Highway, the interstate system was the most important, really big infrastructure project maybe in the world. And then he moved in 1960. I was just an infant to Portland with my mom. And so I grew up there till through second grade. And then in 1968, he got transferred to Salem. And so we moved to Salem. We ended up in uh, South Salem, Marshall Drive, the same street that your dad grew up on. 
went to Morningside Elementary School, went to Judson Junior High. That's what we called them back then. I think we call them middle schools now for one year, but then they realigned and I went to Leslie uh, for two years and then three years at uh, South Salem High School. And growing up, my, my dad wanted to be, uh, make sure that I covered this. You played numerous times in that legendary Salem Thanksgiving Mud Bowl game, right? What are your memories of that? Yeah, it was actually, um, yeah, it, it was uh, Christmas Eve. Oh, got it. Yeah, we started Christmas Eve. The first one was up at Morningside School, really, with, I think, your dad and Brad Weatherby, Jeff Darby, Ken Parsons, David Westfall. I'm sure I'm leaving a few people out. And... Um, played up there and then at some point we we went to Morningside Park and we played that first one would have been I think in 1968 and pretty much they went through about 1983 or four I played in them through high school and then when I came home from college I think I played for in one after college somewhere along the way I guess better judgment uh, took over and we decided playing tackle football even in the mud was not a great idea, but those are uh, legendary uh, games. A lot of fun. Yeah, those games, uh, usually somebody, eventually you hit a certain age where somebody gets hurt and it's uh, eventually you uh, you call it off, but incredible memories. Um, so you finish up your time at South Salem High and you actually head down to Claremont McKenna College. Um, we had another guest on the show, Corey Bickler, who went there. I visited one of the coolest campuses I've ever seen. Um, but what took you down to uh, to Southern California and to Claremont? Well, you know, I think it's a lot of life's just sort of luck and momentum. You know, I was at South Salem. I met where to go college, and I met with a I think one of our college or guidance counselors, Mr. Wirt, as I recall. And Mr. Wirt said, what are you interested in? I said, well, I think I want to be probably a lawyer, some political science, and he said, well, look at this school. And he gave me a catalog and it said Claremont Men's College. And I said, well, I don't really want to go to a men's college. And he said, well, it's co-ed now. You ought to really look at this. And so I wrote a letter because back then that's what you did. We wrote a letter to them and they came back. And the admissions officer, with um, Dean Rogers, was going to be in Portland. And so my dad took the bus to work that day. I took the car and I drove up to Portland and met with... Dean Rogers for, it was supposed to be, I think, 30 minutes, and we spoke for over an hour. I remember he's at the Benson Hotel, which is you know, one of the great hotels of Portland. And I decided I'd apply. So I applied to Notre Dame because I was raised Catholic, uh, Claremont McKenna, it was Claremont Men's then, Stanford, which I'd never been to, never been to Claremont McKenna College either, and Oregon State. And I'm still not sure why Oregon State over Oregon. I think maybe I just like their logo better. Um, got into Claremont, uh, McKenna. My parents drove me down. It's the first time I'd ever seen the college. I'd never been south of San Francisco. And, you know, that's, that's the rest they would say is history. I'd be, you know, I really enjoyed it, learned a lot, not become a lawyer. I took a lot of economics. I didn't know economics existed. I always liked high school and I liked business and economics was a nice blend of both. So then you graduate from Claremont McKenna, and this is kind of a story I heard uh, in another interview on another podcast you did, but um, you sort of allude to this as your intro into kind of taking charge in a business and wanting to to be a leader, which obviously um, is something you do 
to this day being a CEO. But at age 24, you negotiate a, you know, most of us are uh, not doing this at 24. You negotiate a pretty complicated lease agreement with the LA County Fairgrounds. I mean, take us through that story a little bit. Yeah, well, you know, that was a podcast, you know, for National Multifamily Housing. They asked about leadership and I, I kind of started there. But I, you know, I would say some of my earliest leadership experiences, just to step back, were in uh, Boy Scouts, uh, Troop 18 at Morningside Methodist Church and working up there. But at one point we didn't have a scoutmaster and I was still doing scouts. Um, I think most of my friends had dropped out. And uh, I might have even been an Eagle Scout by then, but I was a senior patrol leader and I kind of took over as Scoutmaster, even though I couldn't really, I don't think I could drive yet. Um, but, you know, organizing the campouts and all those. And then when I got to Claremont McKenna, it was, you know, where I opted on leadership is to be a resident assistant and run a, run a dorm, which is um, pretty challenging. It was, at least back then, it was uh, pretty, pretty challenging, a lot of fun, really rewarding. Yeah, so out of out of Claremont, I went into uh, management consulting with um, Price Waterhouse today PwC. I I was working that summer on a project, and uh, I was graduated the semester because I'd taken a semester off with with two other South Salem High School grads. We bummed around Europe for a semester, so I graduated a semester late, and uh, they hired me at the and um, so I joined them in consulting, which back then they didn't usually hire undergrads in consulting, but they'd worked with me that summer as an intern. So that was a great opportunity. And I did any job they gave me. I mean, I just, one, you know, I'm raised in Salem, Oregon. I knew the, the, the real key here was to have a job and have a job you liked. And uh, so I did anything they wanted. So one of the things I did is I worked at, uh, it was called Fairplex, but it was a nonprofit trade association that had a long-term lease on 500 acres in Eastern LA County from the uh, County of Los Angeles. And the CEO wanted to do a lot of improvements there. He wanted to build a hotel, a um, drag strip for the NHRA. They already had uh, temporary facilities. We had horse racing. So he wanted to build a uh, thoroughbred sales pavilion for thoroughbred horse, um, horse sales. And he anyway, we, but to do that, we need a longer term lease for the county of Los Angeles. And so, at, yeah, at about 25, I I took on that task and negotiated for, I don't think, a year and a half to get that lease done. Uh, because at that point, the lease had been done in the 30s, uh, the one that was expiring. And so we need another one to go on for another, um, I think we did 65 years. Wow. So that was... Um kind of your intro to negotiating real estate deals, I guess. Um, so then you, after that, if I have this correct, you attend Stanford and get your MBA. Yeah. I, I knew eventually that I wanted to do something else. And I, all in the back of my mind, I'd always had that I would get an MBA. I thought that was important. Um, so yeah, I applied and I was very fortunate. I got into Stanford uh, but, you know, one of the reasons I got into Stanford is I had a different background than a lot of other people that were a lot brighter than me. I mean, I negotiated that lease. I had a deal with um, we had like a dozen unions that I negotiated with at, at Fairplex. Um, we put on the annual L.A. County Fair, which is one of the biggest paid events in the country. Uh, back then, we had like one point, you know, six million people in 18 days 
all these different experiences. And I think when they looked at rounding out the class, uh, uh, my varied experiences uh, are what helped me get in. So you go to Stanford, um, end up graduating with your your MBA from there, and then um, I don't. I certainly want to get into your time as CEO later, but I don't want to forget that you were with Trammell Crow starting in 1989 for 20 years uh, before you became the CEO. Um, I hate doing this, but in the in in the uh, name of respecting your time, give us kind of like a high level overview of some of the stuff you were doing in that time at Trammell Crow um, before you became CEO. Well, first of all, I you know they hired me. The, the Trammell Crow companies, there's multiple of them, were the biggest employer out of my business school class. I think after either McKinsey or Goldman, but they were right at the top, which should have signified it was the top of the market for real estate at that point, because it was. Uh, and then they hired me. I really wanted to be a developer, but again, because of my background, they asked me to be in the property management company, which I did not want to do. And I fought it to some extent, but in the end, I decided, look, I'm going to take a job based on the company and the opportunity, not on the position today. And I'll do the best I can. I mean, my whole goal was to be the best I can at the position I'm taking today. Um, but I'm, I'm going to hope the future takes care of itself if I work hard and do a good job. And so that, that, that ended up being the case. And in fact, when real estate went into recession, um, I continued to grow the management company and all the development people actually got laid off because there was no development. So, you know, kind of a position I, I didn't want, um, but I took, it turned out to be a blessing in the downturn because uh, it gave me the opportunity to, to keep growing and keep growing the company. They then asked uh, Tremelco Residential through a lot of, uh, we did some um, initial public offerings of different parts of the company in the in the 90s and what the real estate investment trusts, uh, a lot of private developers were going public. Uh, Trammelco Residential never went public as a company, but kind of the arms and legs did. And they asked me to move to Texas and um, I wanted to move to Dallas, but uh, our CEO at the time already found somebody for Dallas. So we moved to Houston, my wife, we had um, uh, three little kids and our fourth on the way and knew uh, four people in Houston. So we moved to Houston in 1994. Are any of your kids in the business or are they all doing different things? My daughter actually, my oldest daughter actually works for one of our competitors who's uh, very good. They're good friends of mine, but she uh, raises equity for uh, it's a company called Hanover. It's a great company. And uh, she uh, raises equity for them in the Western half of the United States. Oh, wow. So you're, you're working in the property management uh, segment of the company for, for some time. And then in 2009 in arguably the worst financial conditions of our lifetimes. I'll let you be the judge of that, but certainly bad conditions. You take over as CEO for kind of a, a, a legend in the state of Texas. And I know there's a story behind this. Um, could you take us through how that came about a little bit? Yeah, well, first, um, one of the, when I moved to Houston, I became a developer. That was one of the attractions of moving was there was no developer. So I went out of the management business into being a developer. And so I'd done that. And, you know, the company had grown. My responsibility had grown. And we went into the 2008 uh, great financial crisis, kind of like at Warp 11, to use a Star Trek analogy. <laughs> we, were, we were going full speed. 
And when the dust settled, we had, you know, about $5 billion in assets, primarily apartments, uh, over 100 apartment projects around the country. But we owned land. We'd gotten into the condominium business, which, you know, was turned out to be kind of a mistake. Um, and we weren't sure what we we're going to do. And so we divide. So our longtime CEO, my, my mentor and good friend, a, a gentleman named Ron Twilliger, retires. And Ron really led the company through the last couple of recessions. Um, he, he had done his, his, his duty. And we decided to do kind of the good bank, bad bank. And because we didn't really know what we were going to do with Trammell Core Residential. Um, we had, again, we had five billion of assets, but three and a half billion dollars of bank debt that we guaranteed repayment of. And so we formed a new company called Mill Creek Residential, which we have a thousand people. Seventy went to lead, went with Mill Creek, and Harlan Crow, our chairman and, and Trammell Crow's son, who was leading the the, com- the the firm overall, called me and asked me to stay with Trammell Crow Residential. And he said, you know, I don't know what this is going to be, if it's just a, you know, wind down or what it's going to be. And so I took that um, thousand employees, 70 went with Mill Creek. We had 930. I eventually laid off and got that down to like 38 people. Wow. But by kind of February, March of 2011, I realized that we could be back in business. And so uh, we we got going again. We eventually paid all the banks back. Um, that took a few more years, but we paid them all back, three and a half billion. And we kind of restarted the company with a pretty small group, and then and then grew it from there. Um, you know, it's, uh, it was uh, it was you know it was a really tough time. I learned a lot. I kind of don't want to do it again, but it's one of those things. I'd be I'd be a lot. I'd know a lot more this if I ever had to do it again. I hope that's not the case, but it was, you know, it was tough. When we lay those that many people off, we went from like 23 offices to three. And it was, it was, um, it was pretty brutal at times. Yeah. That was my next question, actually being, being a guy like yourself, who's been through multiple cycles and also been through probably the worst cycle that we've seen. I mean, how do you kind of balance uh, in, in today where a lot of us, myself included, who've done, real estate stuff. We don't know anything other than prices go up and everything's good. I mean, how do you balance certainly having that a, a recession will come at some point in the back of your head while also taking full advantage of these the opportunities that come on your plate? Yeah. You know, it's an art, not a science. And what you learn is, are the issues become number one, you know, pick good locations do, you know, the A locations, the, the bigger problems that we had in our portfolio with 140 assets throughout the country were in what I call just B locations. And when, for, for us, that meant maybe, you know, a suburb like Henderson, Nevada, which is, by the way, a wonderful town. We had two projects. One did fine. One was in a really poor location in Henderson, Nevada, suburb of Las Vegas, and it performed up to expectations at all. We, we never should have done that deal. And that was that was a deal that I did. I sponsored. I, I, I never we never should have done that deal. So the one you know, where we had a, a site near um, Green Lake or we had a high rise South Waterfront in Portland, you know, and we came through it fine on those. So one, you know, the locations do make a difference. 
The other is debt. I mean, if you're looking over time, real estate generally always goes up and increases in value and the economy, if you look, it recovers. But debt has a maturity. It has a, an expiration date, a date that needs to be paid. And if you get caught in the downturn and the debt's due, that's when the real problem is. So back then we did 25% equity in our deals. Uh, we're now doing 40% equity in our deals. So, so, you know, we finance it with 60% debt and 40% equity. I think, and I think we've creeped up to 35% equity, 65% debt, but we're still down substantially from uh, you know, much, much lower debt than when we were doing 75% debt um, going into the GFC. But in the 80s, when there were real problems, they were borrowing 100%, you know, which was. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know it sounds crazy now, but that's that's you know looking back, that's how the deals were done. You borrowed one hundred percent, or ninety percent, or ninety-five. So, you know, watch your debt. We watch maturities a lot. We try to get uh, basically five years on our bank loans because we're 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 generally building apartments or warehouses. Um, so if we get five years of term, that usually gets you through most of the problems. Moving from your time kind of being more in the weeds to, to going to a, a CEO role where you're obviously overseeing everything, was it a tough transition for you kind of learning to to delegate things and not, you know, I know you in the past, like you would do everything from walking properties to negotiating and all that kind of stuff. Was that a tough transition for you? Not particularly. I mean, I, I'd overseen a big region before. And at some point, you either, you know, you can either work yourself to death, you're trying to manage all those details, or you do less volume. And I've always, you know, on the margin, um, thought it was better to do a little bit more volume in terms of development. You know, the key to all this is hiring people that are competent and that you trust. Um, you know, I ultimately say that you can put all the systems you want in place, but it ultimately comes down to, to trust in any relationship um, and, and particularly in any business relationship. Uh, so, you know, we just got a great team. And, you know, I, I did I walked a, a new high rise. We opened uh, um, year in Dallas and I actually I actually found three things they could have done better. I was really proud of myself that I hadn't totally lost <laughs> the, the details, but. You know, and, and by the way, what I like at 62 doesn't mean that the renter, when our average renter is 32, is exactly what they're looking for. So you got to be careful that, you know, your personal tastes are not what you're always uh, putting into this. Because uh, one of the lessons I took it from business school is a longer discussion is, you know, lots of times you are not your customer. <laughs> Absolutely. And you touched on being able to do more volume. Um all that we hear about these days in this housing market, which is obviously booming and has been for the last few years, is how little supply is out there. So for you guys, from a developer standpoint, is it are you trying to build stuff as quickly as you can or is it a lot more nuanced than that? Well, I mean, we're always trying to build as fast as we can. I mean, t- time is your enemy and time costs money. Uh, yeah, the, the housing the housing crisis in this country is pretty simple. It's, it's all supply related. Um, and even communities that say they want more affordable housing, um, you know, they want housing for workforce, for teachers and policemen and firemen and all the service workers. 
the fact is they put more and more impediments in place that don't allow you to build that housing or it's long takes longer to build it. So uh, we now saying that we're going to start 10,000 apartment units across the country this year and we'll start um, 21 million square feet of industrial warehouse space. So and also start probably two office buildings in Dallas. So so, you know, we're, we're able to find a way to get it done. Um, but the, all those impediments just add to the cost and you're, you're moving away from the, uh, you're making it less affordable, not more affordable. And those, those impediments that you're referencing, that stuff varies massively on a state by state, county by county basis, right? Some places are much easier and some places are an absolute nightmare, right? Yeah, it's city by city and it's even neighborhood within neighborhood um, within that city. A city like Houston, Texas, which is the biggest city geographically uh, in the United States, you know, it, you know, you can have neighborhood opposition to stop projects through, through different ways. And, and, you know, Houston doesn't have zoning, but we have deed restrictions and there are, you know, also some, and there are building requirements. So even though, say, the building code's the same throughout, I mean, neighborhoods can, can really make it tough for you to build them them here even so yeah and then you go into like the neighborhoods like california i mean they just you know they just stop the growth i mean they stop the housing because if you think about it once you're in that city you're you're kind of in the club right and to have anything else that comes in that's from the outside you want the ability to kind of vote on that and to say i want that development or those people in the club. And so there's just a natural inclination to not want change. So if we go into a city and say, look, we could take down, there's some old retail that's really 90% vacant and we can turn into housing. Lots of times the citizens of that city will say, well, you know, we don't want that. We want a park. Or if you bring more housing, that'll create more traffic or it'll create, you know, more demand on our schools. And so they just fight it. And then what happens is the growth gets pushed further and further out where there's less opposition. Yeah, I saw a, it was some video I was watching yesterday where a guy was going around interviewing people and he would go to, you know, parents, he'd go, Hey, do you want your, do you want your kids to be able to buy a house? And they would go, yeah, of course. And then, and then the next follow-up question would be, do you want them to build more houses in your neighborhood? And they would all just say no immediately when you ask them that. Right. We have, we have cities like where we go in, there's some, um, and what we have impact fees, which is sort of your impact on say the water and the sewer and maybe in the infrastructure. And if we're going to build 200 apartments, we pay this in that are 850 square feet each. We have to pay the same impact fee per apartment as a 5,000 square foot house that's being built down the street. It, it's not the same impact, but in that case, they're favoring uh, single-family homes over apartments because they don't. Quite frankly, the community prefers not to have renters who are perceived as quite a different uh, class of people in their in their city, and that that's happens all the time. <laughs> yeah, one thing I know you've touched on and that we're talking about right now is, is there is a problem in this country with there's just not enough housing. And I know something you've mentioned with your business is obviously as CEO, you're, you know, you're tasked with bringing in investor returns, making profits. 
et cetera. Um, but at the same time, you know, you said it, it means something to you that you're, you're doing something good for society and trying to solve this problem. Um, there's a lot of sentiment out there in the, this country and at, in different places, um, which I don't agree with. Um, this idea that almost like chasing profits and capitalism and there's something wrong with making profits. I mean, what is your response to, to people that have some of those takes? Well, okay. I'm, I'm a, I'm a free market person. I always have been in capitalism. You know, it's t- take something as simple, you know, people to, you know, I've had uh, four kids get married now, you know, and spending money on a wedding, you know, and how much do you spend? But remember the wedding, the wedding's also, you spend the money, but if you spend it on the flowers, there's someone who grows the flowers, someone transports the flowers. There's the florist who designs it. If you have entertainment, you know, there's the, the musicians, but also everyone who sets up. I mean, what makes this com- country run is free enterprise. And the fact that people, that's how they earn their living and they can find something they love. So if you're a florist or say you're an artist, you know, we do mur- murals and thing at our um, communities we build, you know, but we pay for that. So if we're building, that creates the opportunities for those artists to get paid or for the florist or for the caterer, you know, pick, pick who you want. I mean, there's, you know, if you look at a car, you can look at a really nice expensive car, but you know, all those tires and the metal and the paint and everything, you know, it all was generated somewhere in a factory and it created jobs along the way. And that, that's what, that's what drives the whole economy. So I don't, I don't really, and, and you have to make a profit. If you look at most of the investors we work with, um, it's called generally private equity, real estate f- funds, but mo- a huge number of their investors are pension funds, state hospitals, uh, city pension funds. They may be foundations. I mean, their investors are all, when they make those returns, it's all going back into society in some way. And often, often through um, pensions and healthcare for a lot of um, citizens in this country. So it's kind of how the whole machine works. It's actually pretty amazing when you think about it. Um, and so if you try to put a clog in part of that, you know, it, it's going to shut down. I mean, we see that. Look at look at the Russian economy right now, which is not free enterprise, and it's a dying country. And now you have, um, you know, a lot of reasons why, but Putin trying to do something to um, keep Russia's glory and justify his leadership. Couldn't agree more. Um, as as CEO, do you have certain um, organizational standards or non non negotiables, if you will, when you look at the the type of people that you want to work with and that you want to hire? We want our people have a big heart. Um, they're just good people, and you know how do you define all that? It doesn't. I was I think I was quoting another podcast you and I discussed to go away for a week and spend <laughs> all your vacation time with them but you know you want to go to lunch with them you want to know their families you want to know their hobbies what they like um so you know, we want to hire good people who want to you know do well while doing good and you know integrity gets talked a lot about integrity gets compromised a lot too by a lot of people over different things but you know you want people with integrity and you know our word is our bond we recently had a 
deal where we um, we shook hands on something and then we got a better offer. And you know, our 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 talk was the guy who cut the deal. I said, "Did you think you had a handshake?" He said, "Yep." I said, "Okay." And then we're going to honor it. So I was I think it was a Zoom shake if there was such a thing, but you know, even though there was no contract uh, for what we we're going to do, so no, it's just you know, if you get good people, uh, treat them well. And if and people make mistakes all the time, so I'm I'm fine with mistakes. As I tell people, I was telling some young folks the other week. I said nobody can lose more money for Trammell Crow Residential than I have uh, <laughs> today. Well, I mean, you know, it's like if you're the quarterback, you're the one who can throw the interception, right? The 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 left left guard's not going to throw an interception, most likely. So, you know, it's what happens. You know, but you know, let's admit our mistakes, learn from them, and then just move on question when so for somebody out there who listens to this or you know just wants to get into real estate or business or whatever it may be um and wants to learn and wants to find a mentor and that doesn't necessarily mean someone like you who's a a ceo it could be somebody who's just successful in their own hometown that they look up to what would you say is the right way to go about asking for somebody somebody for help without just being a taker and just saying, how can you help me? Yeah, it's, it's a, you know, that's a really good question. I think part of it is just being upfront with the person and then being very respectful of their time. Um, and, you know, first of all, are you really asking for help? Lots of times people are asking them for a job or they're trying to sell something. I mean, you know, be sure that your intentions are pure um, you know, if you're saying, Hey, I want to reach out to you because I really do just want, need someone to get guidance on my career occasionally, you know, should I go to business school? You know, I, I went and I was, you know, whatever my undergrad was in this and I'm doing this, but I'd like to change how, how would I go about changing careers? By the way, if you're young, lots of times I do say going to business school is actually a pretty good way to change careers, you know, depending on what your background is. Um, so I, I just think that honesty it, you know, in a little bit, you know, of, of networking locally, whatever that is, it may go from, you know, there may be local, uh, there's all sorts of associations. Um, you know, if it's real estate, there's probably a local apartment association to get involved in and you'll find people through that. Um, but by the way, they don't always have to be in the industry you want to go in either. A lot, some of the best advice I've gotten is from people who aren't real estate people and you just talk to them and sometimes they're more objective because they're not caught up in um, what the heck's going on in the real estate markets. You know? So, so I, I don't know that's a real helpful answer because I don't think there's a path to get there. Uh, you know, but just, you know, you kind of keep asking and, and again, and there's a fine line between being a little aggressive and being a pest and you don't want to go into the pest category. <laughs> I hear you. All right, Ken. Well, I could keep asking you stuff about your job and real estate and business all day, um, but I do want to be respectful of your time. Uh, before we get out of here, uh, are you down for a quick uh, rapid fire round? Sure. All right. What is, you can name a couple if you'd like, favorite hobbies? You know, I, I'm like not a big hobby person. I work out. I love the Peloton. I actually do a lot of nonprofit work as a hobby. I'm very involved in my alma mater. I'm involved in um, a uh, nonprofit housing group here in Houston that I chair. 
Uh, I'm also very involved with a, uh, uh, a church that's not even the church I go to, but it's in a poor section of town. So I actually spent, I, I like it. I enjoy it. It's, it's challenging. and I feel like I add value. So, you know, when I, yeah, when I do have hobbies, um, you know, I got five grandkids now, so now it's starting to turn more to them. And I'm sure that'll, I'm sure that'll change too, as they get a little older. What's your favorite travel destination you've been to? can be really exotic or it can be local doesn't matter yeah i, I, I was gonna say morningside park but <laughs> call me out on that you know actually i tell you that the three cities in the world that i really like are um i like prague uh florence italy and vancouver british columbia i just find all those cities to be really walkable beautiful kind of get your arms around them in a short period of time. So I, I do like to travel. Uh, we've been to Africa twice. I mean, I, I would say going to Africa and I know, I know your, uh, your mom and dad went, we talked about it a couple of years. We're, ago. we're going, uh, we're going again as a family this fall too. Good. We went to Rwanda to see the mountain gorillas and that was just, just amazing. But all, all of Africa is wonderful. Okay. You're, I don't know how often you come back to Salem, but what is your favorite Salem restaurant? back there enough to have really have a, it would be Rudy's right now. Cause that's the one that comes to mind, um, which is pretty good. I mean, when I'm there, I'll take my dad there. That's a, that's a good one. Uh, okay. Last uh, rapid fire. Best thing that you've read, watched or listened to recently. Well, I just read uh, Bob um, Iger. Uh, he retired as chairman and CEO of Disney. And actually I was fortunate enough. He was at our, um, our NMHC annual meeting. So I, I had lunch with him. I just read his book, Ride of a Lifetime. And I just thought it was great because he never really changed companies. They got acquired during the years, but a lot of great lessons in it. So, you know, and then, um, so that one, I got to say, I really like Yellowstone. We started watching Yellowstone, actually didn't like it. Someone said, give it a second chance. And I really like Yellowstone. <laughs> so that's probably the best thing I've, I've watched recently. There you go. Yellowstone and the, uh, the Bob Iger book. All right. So before we let you go, Ken, this is the part of the show um, where I kind of give you the floor. If there's any final shout outs you want to give, I know you alluded to um, a few nonprofits that you work with, but if you want to share specifics on those, or if there's anything, any people, whatever it is that you want to shout out before we go, floor is yours. You know, I, I tell people one of the great parts of my life is that I grew up in Salem, Oregon. I just think it's a wonderful place. The teachers I had and the leaders, the coaches from Morningside to, I don't count my one year at Judson, uh, but to Leslie, uh, to South Salem High School. Um, you know, I, uh, Coach Johnson came to my dad's uh, 90th birthday party. Uh, the scout leaders I had, the friends I made, I just, I looked at, I was very blessed. Um, that's the foundation, um, you know, queen of peace, Catholic church we went to, that's a foundation for me as an individual. And obviously my, my, my parents and my siblings. So that, that's, yeah, you got to have a good base. You know, John Wooden used to, first thing he taught his players was how to put your socks on. Cause if you didn't put your socks on and then your shoes, you got blisters and you couldn't practice. And I feel like Salem, Oregon gave me a great base and taught me, you know, the things that are important. A lot of it gets to, you know, 
do the right thing, but then a lot of humility because you're going to get knocked down enough in life. And then the courage to do the right thing. Um, we all know, and I've been in a situation where we knew the right thing, we didn't necessarily do it, but having the courage to do it also. So I'd just like to say thank you to everyone um, in Salem, Oregon. Um, Yep, Salem is a is a special place, and uh, that's what this podcast is all about: is is bringing on people from Salem who are, um, you know, doing doing big things with their lives. So I, I, I have to do a shout out to Oregon Fruit Products because I worked there for a lot of years after I graduated out of the strawberry and green bean um, uh, fields, and uh, I learned a lot. I, I got a lot of leadership lessons actually at Oregon Fruit Products. And Paul Gaylor is still a great friend whose family owned it for years. Big shout out to Oregon Fruit Products. Well, uh, Ken, I, we've had a lot of great guests on here, but you, um, if anybody we've had on, you're probably the guy that's being pulled in the most different directions with what you do. So I have to say it's, it's an absolute honor uh, that you made time for us. And thanks again for coming on. No, thank you. I mean, I like I said, I um, thank you for doing this. I, you know, I, I'm always admire, uh, you know, when young folks just a little entrepreneurial spirit to do this. So thank you for doing it. And thank you for having me. It's my honor to be on here. Absolutely. Have a good one, Ken. All right. Thank you, Matt. Thank you once again for listening to the Sauce Town Stories podcast. Um, if you could, and if you'd like to help us out, uh, simply go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts at, uh, go to the search bar, type in Sauce Town Stories. It'll be the first one that comes up uh, with the Salem Goldman as the picture. Um, hit subscribe, most importantly, just subscribe, or if you wanna write us a review, or give us five stars, or give us one star if you didn't like it. Uh, appreciate the honesty, but uh, if you could, at the very least, subscribe. That would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Thank you.